0: And the church is made to be a community of people who are witnessing to the death and resurrection of Christ and the fact that he is coming again. We can't do that unless we have healthy marriages and healthy singles.
1: Welcome to another episode of Sex Plus Christian Parents podcast. I'm Jason. And I'm Thomas. And we are going to dive into a conversation once again around LGBT, but this episode we have the privilege of being able to welcome Rachel Gilson. Rachel is on leadership with Crew uh, International. She also is the author of Born Again This Way. She's married, is same-sex attracted, has a child, and so you're going to be able to hear her story. I I know that uh, some of you are are going to hear the word same-sex attracted and married. She is married uh, to a man, but I, I want for us to Dive into this a little bit differently. I share that because I know that we uh, can instantly start having these ideas. And and honestly, I just want you to listen to her story. I think it's important to hear. I really appreciate the way that she thinks uh, theologically, the way that she takes her story and allows for scripture to have an impact on it. Uh, And Thomas and I in this episode, we're going to even dive into the conversations a little bit more theologically. So, again, Rachel Gilson here she is.
0: I'm a California native sojourning in New England. And as a California little girl, teenager, I would not have predicted that I would be in New England, but let alone a Christian minister. Because I grew up in a non-Christian household, just, just not even churching even a little bit. So by the time I was in high school, I cared about the big ideas of life, but I just didn't have a lot of respect for the faith or people of faith. I was sort of full of myself. And so I thought, okay, on the one hand, I got to strike out on my own intellectually. That's part of how I ended up in New England because I went to a fancy school. But then the other thing that I realized in high school was that the way that my peers felt about guys was actually how I felt about other young women. I always enjoyed the company of like my guy friends and I attempted dating them, but everything was sort of, it was just sort of awkward, you know, it's just felt like, oh, this doesn't quite fit. And when I started to have romantic and sexual relationships with other young women, I realized, oh, this is what feels like home. Now, that was back in like 2003, which feels like a cultural century ago kind of wild to me the places we've gone since that time but I you know I sort of opened my moral reasoning junk drawer and kind of looked around for like is there any reason why marrying a woman dating women would be wrong it's like I can't I can't find anything like way before the phrase love is love became like a catchphrase type thing I was like well that's got to be it there's nothing harmful in this and so I, I went out to college um equipped with my own sense of my intellectual superiority, a.k.a. I was a big jerk, and two, knowing that, that I was going to end up married to a woman. So I kind of got conned into moving to the East Coast because no one told me how cold it was actually going to be, but I really wanted to go to Yale, and so that's, that's where I went. And during my freshman year, um, the Lord just exploded me. On the one hand, it turns out I was not the smartest person at this world-class institution. I had, in fact, been trained at a fairly mediocre public high school in rural California, and so just wasn't as ready as I might have hoped. So that kind of sent part of my identity into a spin. And then the other thing that happened during my freshman year was the girl I was dating at the time broke up with me and... Not to be stereotypical, but teenage breakups are, you know, they're kind of intense in their own way. And I was really floundering. Um, so I remember spending the beginning part of my quote unquote spring semester, again, it was the dead of winter, just kind of in an identity crisis during my freshman year. Not not feeling like I had a place at my school, feeling like this girl who I thought I was going to be with forever. And really abandoned me for no good reason. <laughs> and it wasn't like, oh, I need to turn to Jesus, you know, I was thinking, like, God, like I need a new hobby or I I should go to the gym, except I'm really lazy. You know, it's just silly things like that. And I happened to be in a course on Western philosophy. And so early in the spring semester we were covering Rene Descartes, who's the old dead French guy who invented the phrase, I think therefore I am. And from that, he um, you know, created this whole proof for the existence of God. And I remember sitting in the audience listening to this, thinking this is a really stupid proof for the existence of God, which I still believe. But while I was sitting there, it was also sort of coming to my mind like, well, well what if there are better proofs for the existence of God? Which kind of made me feel instinctively defensive, like, no, no, we don't think about proofs for God. That's for stupid bigots. I still, I kind of couldn't shake that I was interested. And I thought, well, what if there's like a good proof of the existence of God that I haven't heard, but that I need to know to be able to refute, you know, because I'm a good, solid atheist. You know, I'm an elder millennial. So by instinct, I decided I would ask the internet these important questions, right? This was back when you needed um, a lot of upper body strength to get your Dell laptop open. Or crank that thing up and just fire religious search terms into Google. And over and over again, to my surprise, I kept coming back to descriptions of Jesus. Now, I thought of Jesus sort of like a, an ancient George W. Bush wrapped in a toga or something, which was not a image that really appealed to me at the time. But when I was reading about him, I was actually confronted with someone who clearly had a lot of intelligence, but also someone who was really tender. And I was interested in the character of Jesus which just made me feel uncomfortable cuz i was like i want to marry a woman someday like i ju- i felt like my sexuality was a barrier even from being interested in him as like a historical person or whatever
1: i think it's important for us to just pause for a moment because we're sharing rachel or rachel is sharing her story and um you know we we so often hear these stories right and it begins with the person of jesus right and I, i'm always Fascinating. I, I do appreciate the way that Rachel had this image of Jesus as George W. Bush in a toga. Good. But but I mean, I think it points to these, these uh, dynamics that so many individuals are trying to move beyond and point to the
2: tender and truthful aspect of who Jesus is. Oh, that's absolutely it. I think as a church, because we've taken focus off of Jesus, and once again, not even maliciously, but we've lost sight of who scripture says he really is and was, it then makes it harder not just to live it out, but for those who are far from God to interact with him. But when we do highlight who Jesus is and when people do get confronted with that, you see both this tenderness, this gentleness, but also this strength and truthfulness. And he holds it in tension very well. Right, like this, I'm just amazed as we over and over again when we
1: turn to Scripture, how often it's 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 the sinner and it's the individual that's the outcast that is so often the one that's most drawn in, right, to Jesus, and it's not that Jesus. Goes light on them, but there's just something beautiful in the relationship that he offers. And so far in this series, as we've dived into it, I've been amazed at how often when you think of Greg or you think of Sam, and now we're hearing from Rachel, and it was the person of Jesus that drew them in. Right. I I think that that's really important for parents to hear that because I think that one of the things that went awry with the sexual purity movement, as mm. it became so focused on purity, it lost sight of Jesus. Jesus. Yep. Yep. And and so parents, as you're listening to Rachel's story, it's important for you to be able to hear how she is seeking the person of Jesus, and how our responsibility as parents is to point our children to the person of Jesus. And we 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 will dive into this uh, here a little bit more on this episode, but. But Jesus is the central part of this story here in the beginning,
2: and I don't want us to lose sight of that. And can I add, while she is drawn to Jesus, Jesus is drawing her to himself. As we record this podcast in my church, I'm going through Luke right now, and I can't tell you how many stories where Jesus is connecting with those who are seen as the outcasts, who are not accepted in religious society, and it's the religious folk that get rebuked. So when I think of, once again, stories of Rachel or from Sam or for Greg and the struggles they've gone through or for anybody within the community that we're discussing over these last few episodes, we need to teach our children God loves them just as much as he loves the church the people in our church yeah and draws them to himself and that's so hard as someone that's religious yes <laughs> as someone
1: that's a leader uh, right and when we, we we have to confront the scriptures and so often what's so hard is sometimes i have to be willing mm-hmm. and able and and you know humble myself enough to be able to say mm, you know, I I am the leader that he is speaking to, right? And so, as we confront Jesus, you and I, right? Sometimes good. it's not in the aspect; it's most often not as the outcast. It's the one that's the leader. And so, yeah. how do these words impact me? Yeah, that's that's really good. I'm glad you said that.
0: So The only two people I knew at Yale who identified as Christians were these two girls who were dating each other, and one of them was training to be a Lutheran minister. So I thought. Well, maybe they know something I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they did know a lot of things I didn't know. Uh, And I went to them and asked basically how they reconciled these things. Because in my mind, they were not reconcilable, which honestly is interesting to me at this point in my life because I had never been mistreated by a Christian. And yet somehow I knew that there was no space for me in this faith. But they explained to me well. The Bible's actually for monogamous same-sex relationships. It's all been a big misunderstanding. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. So they gave me this packet of information that was going to explain the correct interpretations, which I love packets. So this was very exciting for me. You know, I took it back to my room. I was reading it carefully, and I found it incredibly persuasive. I thought, wow, this is really interesting, really hopeful in a certain way, even though I wasn't saying I believed in God or wanted to be a Christian. But I also thought maybe I should read the actual biblical texts for myself. So I didn't have a Bible, so I, again, was just pulling them up online. And that's where the problem started for me, is I was looking at the packet back and forth between the passages and the packet and thinking, oh, these interpretations are actually not as solid as they seemed once I look at the source. And it's not like I was a Bible scholar. It's just literally the only thing I'm good at is reading. And so I remember feeling like, okay, well, it's really nice for these girls. They seem happy, but I I just don't think that the Bible's actually for this. So I remember feeling sort of stupid and throwing it in the trash can. Not my computer, the packet. (laughs) A little while after that, I happened to be in the room of a friend of mine who was a non-practicing Catholic. And I was standing in her doorway one day, and she was just getting stuff in her room. Uh, like throwing stuff in a bag or whatever. And next to her doorframe was a bookshelf. And one of my favorite hobbies is to look at people's bookshelves and judge them. And so I was checking out her shelf and I saw a copy of this book called *Mere Christianity by CS Lewis. Now I had not been raised in the church, so it didn't ring sort of the correct bells for me, but the title was very appealing and I thought, oh, I really want to read this book. But I was so embarrassed. I didn't want to ask for the book. So I just stole it. Like, it's not that big. It fits into a bag like it's not. And I had no mall code. So I was reading this book between classes one day in the library because it was way easier than my homework. And as I was sitting there, I don't even remember if it was like a particular sentence or paragraph or whatever. But as I was sitting there, I was overwhelmed with the realization that like, oh, God exists, but not even in like a generic way, like the God who made me exists, like the God who made everything exists. It was almost like I felt his holiness without knowing that vocabulary word, like his perfection, his transcendence. And what I felt was fear because (laughs) I was a big jerk and I lied and I cheated on stuff and I was sexually immoral and I was reading a stolen book. Like I knew That all my chips were pushed into the guilty category. But with that, I also understood, I think the Spirit made clear to me, that part of the reason Jesus had come was to place himself as a barrier between God's wrath and me. And that the only way to be safe was to run towards Him and not away from Him. And so I remember sitting there thinking, I don't want to become a Christian. Christians are exceedingly lame. But I was also like, well, I can't pretend this isn't true just because it's like inconvenient for my life. <laughs> like, that's, that's pretty stupid. Like, it's either true or it's not true. And I was convinced. I knew I wasn't going to get a better deal than this. So I, you know, I didn't have like a nice campus minister to show me a booklet and lead me through a prayer, but I kind of knew I needed to pray. And so I bowed my head and was like, fine, I'll become a Christian. And then I just went to class. And I happened to see a little sign for um, Yale Students for Christ, you know, a little Christian group on campus. They were going to have a Valentine's party in a couple days. And I showed up at that party pretending I was there by accident and met those kids and just followed them around like a baby quail for the rest of the semester. You know, they, they gave me a Bible, taught me how to read it. They brought me to church. They taught me to pray. I learned that you hug a lot, that you don't curse to make friends, that the music's pretty bad, like all the things you need to know to be an evangelical. And I was really, I was delighted in so many ways. But it became clear to me really quickly that my attraction to other women hadn't gone anywhere. And it's been 17 years, and my attraction to women hasn't gone anywhere. And so a a big part of my life, in different ways, throughout the past, you know, over a decade. A big part of my life since then has been figuring out what does it mean to thrive in Christ in the midst of these attractions? And at different points, um, let's just say my obedience was (laughs) fragile and uh, unsuccessful. And now I would say that my same-sex attraction can't probably even really be categorized as a struggle anymore, though it's still an experience. And so part of my desire has not been just to understand it for myself, but also to help the church be better on this. I think I've had some advantages in relating my sexuality to the gospel because I grew up outside of the church. I would love to see a time where people were actually better outfitted to do that because they grew up in the church.
1: Thomas, I know that when you hear that phrase, that she says that, that uh, she had an advantage in relating to the gospel to her sexuality because she was raised outside the church and that people inside the church are often at a disadvantage. I mean, what, what do you hear as a pastor
2: when she says that? yeah that breaks my heart but she is accurate like 100 percent accurate i also didn't grow up in church um, and so i can resonate with the advantage of hearing about and having conversations about certain things that the church just doesn't have yeah and so as the church continues to miss the mark and i gotta be careful right we're not judging the entire church big c but broad stroke here but as we continue to miss the mark on having this important conversation about sexuality, about same-sex attractions, the whole gamut of things that we do here at Project 619. Recognize we are creating disciples who are then ill-equipped to engage their world the same way Jesus did. And that's what's problematic. Yeah, and you you use the word disciple. Uh,
1: we have had other guests that have talked about being a disciple or... Uh, being uh, having sexual discipleship so essentially being able to find a way to uh, create disciple opportunities through how we steward our sexuality absolutely you know, um, you know, this is maybe a hard pivot, but I also feel like it fits within this is the dynamic of what we find in Scripture. You know, in Scripture, uh, there are essentially six passages, if you will, around homosexuality. For our listeners, just so you know, uh, you, you find it in Leviticus. You find two passages, one in Leviticus 18, you find another in Leviticus 20. Uh, which we can dive into we we talked briefly I believe on the, the last episode or one of the last episodes on first Corinthians 6 9 through 10 uh, you also see it in first Timothy uh, so uh, you know there there are a number of mentions uh, Romans 1 nice. 26 yep. 27 I think that's all six yep. right uh, that th- those are essentially the passages that we turn to okay I say all this because um, she's gonna make a pivot here in a moment in the interview that we had and talking about the restrictions that we see in scripture and these are the places that we see the restrictions right. but I think that sometimes we focus so much on the restriction that we lose sight of the person of Jesus
2: mm, that's good
1: and and I I just really want for us as parents our listeners for you and I as we're engaging in this together to not lose sight of of Jesus. Now, that does not mean that Jesus condones uh, uh, same-sex sexual relationships. I think that what we find over and over again in Scripture is that it doesn't. In fact, the interesting thing too uh, that we find in. Uh, 1 Corinthians specifically, in the translation that Paul uses, he actually takes a word and essentially is using the similar word that is used in Leviticus. Now, I, I know you geek out on this and, and are way, way more knowledgeable in the Greek and the Hebrew than I am, but there are words that are used and, um I am not gonna say them on our episode because I will absolutely destroy <laughs> them <laughs> but but the root of the word that's being used for uh, lying with another is almost the same that what many scholars have suggested is that it's a it's a root of the word that was used in uh in the Old Testament that Paul kind of created a word right like like when we take a word like cool and then we make it into like Coolio. Like like right? Like like we're we're adding our own little bit to it. And that's what many scholars have said. Paul did. I mean, would, is that a fair assessment? Is that a fair
2: way of, of? Yeah, no, I think you're nailing it right. It's it's the word found in First Corinthians six nine that directly correlates back to Leviticus twenty verse thirteen, and it's yes. it's Paul, <laughs> it's Paul. Really, the word we have in Corinthians seems to be this compound word, if you will, yes, based off of a Hebrew cognate word that we have, and so he's almost when he says it, you could go back to that and relate that. So you know, you're spot on with that. And so, uh, you know, as we transition into Rachel talking about some of the restrictions, I I
1: want for our our parents to understand um, that these are not outdated passages. They still resonate, but we have to look at the whole aspect of what is being spoken, the context, right? So often we take one verse and we don't read the entire chapter. We don't read the entire book. We don't understand why
2: that book was written, who it was written to. You also got to remember too, it's not like God or any other New Testament authors or Old Testament authors went on a soapbox against one particular thing they're discussing. Yeah, The reason why you see it and you talk about this Jason embedded with other sins is because the point is being made if you're to be the people of God there is a way to live that is countercultural, and that works true in the Old Testament and true in the New Testament and so a particular sin is never Seen as higher than another one. Now we as humans have done that. Yeah, and we talked about this on other episodes. We've done that with homosexuality, same sex attraction. Even I mean, you go down the list. We've done that. But I want to be careful placing that on God because that was never His intention.
0: Very early in my Christian life, I wanted to understand why does God say no. I felt comfortable with the fact that He said no. Like the Scriptures were clear, no to same sex lust and sexual relationships and I've since learned Greek and Hebrew it turns out it's still no fine okay but I did not understand why God said no it seemed to me both arbitrary and cruel and I thought if God will just tell me why I think I'll be better equipped to obey but the Lord really pressed on me at this time What if the most important question isn't, why am I asking this of you? I'm not saying it's unimportant. What if the most important question is, can you trust the one who's asking? Because if I was only willing to obey when I both understood and liked what God said, I was not actually a disciple of the Lord, I was my own authority in order to obey that command, you have to trust that God is for you. Because it doesn't actually make sense. And that's where the serpent got Eve. He got her to look at it and to consider, wow, is that what God really said? And so she sees that the fruit is attractive. She sees that it would taste delicious. She sees that it was, it's desirous to make her wise. So she has all this data on the one hand that eating the fruit is good the only thing she has on the other side is god's word saying don't do it you're going to die and i felt so much analog with my own experience because i felt like i had this whole pile of reasons why pursuing my desire was going to result in good and i thought i could even shape it in a christian way you know you could delay sex until marriage all these things The only thing I had on the other side was God's word saying, don't do it. It will lead to death. And so I felt in such a similar position and it pressed me into who is the Lord? Because I think when we try to understand his words abstracted from who he is, it means we end up shipwrecked before we even leave the harbor. So really formative for me was having to dig again and again and again into the question of, Who is Jesus and do I trust him? And that was so important for me, and it continues to be important for me. It was often, I mean, even in even in times where I made some really big mistakes, and I could have just left the Christian faith because you know I had friends and like church was nice, but that wasn't gonna hold me. It was Christ Himself that I couldn't leave. But later I realized maybe I'm not thinking correctly about what God has shown about the wise. Cuz I'm coming at it entirely through the doorway of no. And it, and it, again, it seems arbitrary or cruel some of the things he says, but I know God's character is not arbitrary or cruel. So something is wrong. His words would not be cruel and arbitrary if he is not. So I thought maybe I need to look at what he says yes to. Maybe that'll help frame it. Sort of like, you know, my family owns a Honda Odyssey that's designed to run on gasoline, that's the yes. You know, I can't say it's arbitrary or cruel that if I put bubble bath solution into the tank and it won't run, like, oh, that's not fair. Like, that's just not, the no's are predicated on the yeses, right? And so I started sort of slowly, I mean, this honestly took years. Working through scripture, what does it it say about sexuality that's positive? Like, what did God make sex for? And it's pretty clear you cannot run into sex without running into marriage over and over again.
1: Thomas, if you see my heart palpitating, it's it's because, uh, I mean, this woman is speaking the truth that we have so often talked about as a ministry. She's dynamite. Right? The greater yes. uh, You know, we often talk about God's no's are always encompassed within that greater yes. And we often miss that yes. I always talk to individuals and say, you know, where we run to becomes our identity. Mm. And it's so much easier psychologically to run to a yes than it is a no. And I just find it amazing that in Rachel's journey that that is what uh changed the dynamic of how she engaged her sexuality, how she engaged her faith. But I I just I'm so grateful for the questions that she asked that, you know, we, we, we heard her say, uh, we, we hear the why that we see, we see the reasons in scripture, right? We talked about that just a moment ago, but no one really tells you why. And here she is. She's starting to step into that. She's starting to talk about again. <laughs> uh, we've talked about this on almost every episode, but marriage, I mean, here we are again. Yep. And, her ability to ask these questions, point to this greater yes, and now step into marriage, th- there is not just a posture, but a theology. I know that you have said that you just really dig what Rachel is is having everyone hear. I mean, what is it
2: that, that stands out to you? Yeah, and you hit it at the end, the theology, because what she's doing is she's connecting her experience as a creation of God, the created being, Back to the Word of God. So the fact that she can wrestle with same-sex attraction, same-sex relationships, because she was in one, right? But then relate that to this now new faith she has and then tie – the the nose and scripture and i do little air quotes the nose and scriptures within the greater yes but then go back to genesis and go oh this seems to be the same problem which it is like that's the issue of sin right i get excited as a pastor as a theologian uh, as a follower of jesus when we start seeing the word connect with our life this way that was the issue in the garden god gives adam and eve the framework in which they're to operate and they hear the no they don't see the framework they hear the no Mm. so what does the what what does the serpent come along and do he tells them a yes to the no they got now they're now they're attracted and they fall and that's what this conversation becomes we we hear the no's and listen you probably if you're listening maybe you've done that maybe you've given a lot of no's (laughs) all right i know as a parent (laughs) That sometimes (laughs) seems to be my favorite word, right? Yeah, We give a lot of the no's, but do we actually ever start with the yes and the plan and what God is doing and the framework? So that way, the no's make sense. Um, It was said to me this way once by a preacher, uh, rules without relationship equal rebellion. And I think what happens when we talk about this topic of attraction, we want to hit rules on people. But we don't want to develop the relationship between them and God that God loves them and cares for them. And that's what I think Rachel's doing. She's just she's connecting these dots of her story yeah. to the word, and it's just powerful.
0: And so I realized marriage is designed to display the gospel, and that sets the parameters around what sexuality is. God designed human marriages to be these living, breathing, running around pictures of the gospel. Of his relationship with his people. So, everything that's true about human marriage is in order to serve that metaphor. And this is something I talk about significantly in the early chapters of my book, or again, this way, because it was so foundational for me. There's a lot of different angles from which you can pursue it. But, you know, we might take the good of faithfulness. God designed human marriage to be faithful for the entire lifetimes of the spouses. Because God's relationship with his people is perfectly faithful. (laughs) At least his end, our end, um, you know, the record's a little spottier. But because of the work of Christ, we're actually able to become the faithful bride. And sometimes when people in the Christian community get nervous about things like gay marriage, I also want to remind them, hey, who has trashed the good of faithfulness more? There could exist exactly no gay people in the world and straight people would have done their very best to drag the good of faithfulness through the mud, rip it up, and throw it into a ravine. Every single one of us experiences and expresses our sexuality in ways that are broken. So we all all participate in various ways of not allowing marriages to communicate the gospel like God designed them to do. You know, you've got things like faithfulness, you've got things like procreation of the building of households, which images God's new life he does through the church. Even sexual desire is an image because it, it corresponds to the extreme way that God desires his people and that his relationship with his people is intimate um, and pleasurable. So all, uh, all of these things can be reasons why marriage is supposed to display these things because it's a picture and Part of what we struggled with is, well, can't two men or two women have all those things? Can't they rear children and experience sexual pleasure and be faithful to each other? Of course they can. Probably many of us know gay couples where a lot of those things are happening, if not all of them. And so that's where we've hit sort of moments where it's like the record scratch when it comes to what does God say no to here? Because those other parts of marriage still remain intuitive to us because we're made in God's image. So some things about what he says are intuitive. But also every single culture has pieces of what God has said, which are no longer intuitive because we're broken. And I think you absolutely see in scripture that marriage is designed to be male and female because of the metaphor. You've got these two different non-interchangeable parties who are able to come together in unity, male and female, because they're representing these two Fundamentally different, non-interchangeable parties that are able to be able to come together. God and humanity. Now, God and humanity are much more fundamentally different than male and female. Let's not kid ourselves. But at the same time, nothing represents the fact that humanity is equal but made in two types, like male and female. There's lots of differences between us. You know, I'm descended from Europeans. Other people are descended from Asians or Africans. Uh, You know, I'm an Enneagram 5. Some people are Enneagram 18 uh you know there's introverts and extroverts and all these things i know there's not an enneagram 18 by the way i just said that to be provocative um lots of types of diversity in humanity which are all really really good but this fundamental diversity of male and female is utilized by god to communicate something powerfully in marriage and it's just everywhere and god is always the male partner and his people are always the female partner and that's not because god is afraid of female which he talks about himself nursing Jacob at his breast and carrying Israel in his womb because he's not afraid of being compared to moms. He designed moms to picture his love. So it's got to be something else. It's not sexism. We see it, of course, beautifully demonstrated in Ephesians 5. And that really helped me to see, like, listen, God has designed marriage to do certain things. So On the one hand, it means just because a marriage is male and female does not mean it's showing the gospel. It might be male and female and broken all the way through. At the same time, there are same-sex relationships that might have a lot of joy and affection and commitment and positive things, yet they still fall short of what God has said that marriage is supposed to do. They don't communicate that gospel message. and That doesn't mean that we need to trash what those people are experiencing. It doesn't mean we need to like throw rocks at them or verbal slander. Frankly, what it should do is draw all of us to recognize that we need the grace and forgiveness of Christ when it comes to our sexuality. And it's those of us who identify with him who should be the first to respond to his very high call of obedience because it's something good. Which is that's a tall order. We, we'd so much rather look at the sin of other people than the sin of ourselves to our shame.
2: Boy, I tell you, I love what Rachel's saying here because it makes me first think of Jesus interacting with Pharisees versus those who were called sinners, right? Tax collectors, um, those who were seen as outcasts because the Pharisees, the religious folk often forgot that they too needed God. Hmm. And I think that's the last word she gave. And I'm just wrestling with that of before we start to cast judgment and throw stones and critique and all these other things, recognize that all of us are at the mercy of God in need of his grace, his love, his truth. And there's a way to go about it. But she said a lot of powerful things in that last segment. Jason, what are some of your thoughts when you start to consider how she pivots and talks about marriage, the one man, the one woman and what God is doing? Yeah. I I <laughs> there's a lot there, right? I, I, and I
1: I think that one of the things that we have to be able to do as parents is point to all aspects of scripture, not just one or two elements, not just the six verses, but all of scripture. And you know, one of the things that is so fascinating is Jesus does not hide from this conversation. Nope. Jesus actually tackles the conversations around sex and sexuality, and specifically even tackles the issue of male-female. When you turn to Matthew 19, Jesus has asked the question uh, about divorce, which you don't necessarily equate to a conversation around sexuality. Um, And Quite honestly, we, we even when we talk about adultery, which is in the Ten Commandments, thou shall not commit adultery, uh, we, we fail to recognize that it's so much bigger than sleeping with someone else's spouse. It does have to do with how we steward our sexuality. And when Jesus is approached by the Pharisees, the, the, the religious people, yeah. right, and, and is asked this question, what do we do about divorce, uh, Moses allowed it. Jesus does this thing. It's a two-part, what's really a three-part answer. The first thing he does is he points back to Genesis 1, 27. And what is that? Created them male and female. The Pharisees are asking a question about, <laughs> about uh, divorce. They're not asking about, what, did God create us male and female? No, right. he's simply engaging with it by starting with the, the differences that we have in gender that marriage is male female right which is really fascinating and something that we just need to pause and think about because he did not need to to speak to that 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 was fairly well known in that group at that time among those leaders, it, it, but he says that. He goes on then to quote from Genesis 2, uh, uh, I think uh, 24, or 25, uh, 25, where it says, therefore, uh, he, he says— um, This reason. For this reason. Created, man the man leaves. The man leaves. Yep. Says, yep. Thank you um, I obviously you have it up in front of you I don't have it up in front of me but but goes on to quote Genesis 2:25 yep. and and again his his audience knows this passage is very familiar with it has um, uh, and then Jesus does something else he says therefore what God has brought together let no one separate right and and essentially that's Jesus adding to that he's he's quoted Genesis from Genesis 1 he's quoted from Genesis 2 and then he adds his own Emphasis. Right. That is often lost on us.
0: A big concern I had in writing my book was not only describing how I ended up in a marriage to a man, even though I'm same sex attracted, but also explaining that while marriage is a very good picture of the gospel, it's not the only picture of the gospel. Singleness actually has a huge amount of dignity and worth as represented, especially in the New Testament. And one of the things we've done in the church is we have bought into what the world is also bought into, which is salvation by romance, right? Like I am not a full or complete person until I have a significant other. We often pressure people to get married or we make them assume that marriage is the reward for being a faithful man or woman. And so then what happens when God does not provide a spouse for someone who has been faithful or when that faithful person is same-sex attracted and would not be able to sustain the necessary sexual relationship that's a part of marriage is then we make God out look like a liar we actually tarnish his reputation when we put promises in his mouth that he is not there one of the biggest concerns i have with the story god has given me is that it will be used to bludgeon those who god has not called to marry i think in fact that most disciples who experience same-sex attraction will not end up in marriages and that they should be supported in that because singleness is viewed in the scriptures as deeply good, especially when it's lived out for Christ. If marriage is a picture of the gospel, singleness is a picture that someone believes in the resurrection, right? That they're saying, I know that marriage is a good thing, and I know that I am not cut off from the real marriage. The resurrection is coming, and I am invited. I am a part of the Bride of Christ. I'm not going to miss the real thing, even if I miss this little picture of what it is. And the church is made to be a community of people who are witnessing to the death and resurrection of Christ and the fact that he is coming again. We can't do that unless we have healthy marriages and healthy singles. One of the biggest mistakes a person could make would be listening to my story and therefore thinking that God owed either them or someone they care about a marriage or demanding that someone get into marriages. This is something that the church foisted upon plenty of same-sex attracted people in the 80s, 90s and beyond, right? Marriage was supposed to be this um, sign that you really believed God's sexual ethic. Or there was this hope that if you got married and had enough straight sex, it would make you straight. What all that did was lead to marriages that were broken and miserable for not only the spouses involved, but also the communities connected to them. Marriage is not commanded nor promised in Scripture. It is honored. And so I think that is the same tenor we need to take up in our local churches.
2: You know, we, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but I love the way Rachel words this salvation by romance in terms of how marriage is portrayed. And I think we just got to continue to keep that in the front of our minds, especially as parents. As we're talking with our children that we're not looking to push them in either direction, singleness or marriage, but rather flesh out what God would have for their life. And as we help disciple our children into God-honoring adults, we just trust the Lord will help them navigate his work and will for their life in that arena.
1: Absolutely. And I I, I think as we, we close out this episode, even taking one step further, because I know there are going to be parents that, that want to know that one question of, you know, what if my child is wrestling with their sexuality? And I, I thought what Rachel had to share was really helpful.
0: But the reality is there are a lot of people who are faithfully thriving in Jesus Christ who experience same-sex attraction, right? It, the experience of same-sex attraction is not a death sentence. In fact, some of us experience it as a window through which we actually see the glory and goodness of God with greater clarity. And I, I think in many ways, God is using same-sex attracted disciples to get the church to examine more clearly its relationship to desire and romance and bigger questions in general. So if I had a parent come to me with this concern that their child was questioning their sexuality, I would just want to encourage them that the Lord is with them, that he is not afraid of this moment, and that as their parent um, they have full, they have full permission to simply love and cherish their son or daughter, and to be supportive of them as they ask these questions. If your child identifies as a Christian, you should take that Christian identity seriously, right? Say, okay, like as you think about what you might be experiencing, trying to figure out how you feel. Already, that's an awkward conversation to have with your parents. It's like, let alone theologically. like we don't usually like to talk to our parents about these types of things. So you're being brave already. <laughs> Just trying to say like,, um, how can we think together about how the Lord might feel about these things? Like, and I would want them to be able to show their child that Christ is for them.
1: Thanks again for listening to this episode of Sex Plus Christian Parents podcast. Wow, we've been doing this for over a year now and we're so grateful for all of our listeners. Whether you're just joining us or you've been a listener since the beginning, thank you. One of the best ways for you to be able to support the ongoing work of this podcast and so many others that we have planned for this ministry in the future is to be a Patreon supporter. So join us now. Go to patreon.com backslash project619 And become a supporter today, because what we're doing is making a difference. And we can only do it because of you. I'm Jason. And I'm Thomas. And we're so grateful that you have joined us here on this episode.
0: Join us again for our next episode. Thanks.